Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is French Wars of Religion. Welcome back. I hope you all enjoyed hearing the story of the least impressive of the past in this series, at least in my humble opinion. I think he's tied for least impressive of, you know, all the series. This week, it's time to look at religion. <laughs> I do want to remind you all before I start that I have started a YouTube channel, if that's your preferred listening method. There will also be additional content coming on there soon and patrons keep an eye out for this. I want to be very clear with this episode that I am not an expert on religion. I'm relying on those with far more expertise than I could imagine having. Saying that, I love reading about religion and this period, the rise of Lutheranism and the other reform religions and the Catholic Church's response to this sudden change and request for change. My sources for this episode, at least the first bit, are the Encyclopedia Britannica, because I can only read so many books on religion, and I really wanted the first bit to be a simple rundown of Christianity. I've also looked through the Catholic Encyclopedia, which is freely available online, and I recommend giving it a look if you want more information about the Catholic Church in general. Once I get to the events in France, I'll be using a lot of the same resources from my previous episodes. That's because Antoine de Bourbon comes up a lot in little snippets during the start of this period, as you can imagine, based on what happened in his life. So again, these are Queens and Mistresses of the Renaissance France by Kathleen Wellman, The Age of Catherine de' Medici by J.E. Neal, Frederick J. Bumpgarner's Radical Reactionaries, The Political Thought of the French Catholic League, and then two books called The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, one by Barbara B. Dyfendorf and the other by Arlette Joanna. Any other websites I use will be included in the links in the show notes, and I'll share them freely if you're curious at all. Now, to be clear on any bias, since I think it's important to acknowledge and to examine this, I was raised in a non-religious but culturally Christian household. Despite not being religious myself, it would be unfair to even try to claim that this reduces my bias. My mother did try to make church a part of our family, but my sisters and I were never very interested in it, and just resoundingly rejected that. 
My father's family is Wesleyan and my mother's is Presbyterian, but neither are publicly religious themselves. My father would describe himself as an agnostic atheist and my mother as just personally Christian. But my childhood was steeped in Christianity. I grew up in an area that was moderately religious and my parents both grew up in the Deep South, an area in the US known for its religiosity. I also lived in a country that had ongoing socio-political tensions dealing with evangelical Christianity in a traditionally Buddhist country. This would be Korea. If anything, my experiences make me more biased to just wave away the political and religious events of this time period as an ancient superstition from uneducated people who couldn't see outside of their religious bubble. And that's really unfair of me. And it's something that I've learned to not do and try to avoid in general. Throughout writing this episode, I've reminded myself that the people I'm talking about are just as intelligent as me because they're, they're human beings just like me. And plenty were more educated than I am, though sadly, most were illiterate at this time. They didn't just have the option to not be religious. Honestly, until November 1859, not believing in a god, higher being, or a creator was a pretty big leap to make, especially in Europe. And yes, I am aware that there isn't a creator in Buddhism, but there are powerful individuals stuck in samsara, the cycle of rebirth. There's one other important thing I want to avoid in this episode, assuming that my listener knows anything about Christianity. Only 2.4 billion people on planet Earth are Christian of some type, and that means about 5 billion aren't. Even those who are Christian don't necessarily know the history of their religion, or sometimes even what books are in their, their Bible, or even sometimes what books are in their Bible, or what the Ten Commandments actually say. It's, it's important to check this out. So I'm going to make sure to explain the basics that are important as I go. To those who know Christianity, Catholicism, or the Reformation, this bit will be a bit of a review, so hopefully you enjoy listening to my voice. With that, here's a quick history of Catholicism. Just in case you're not aware, the foundation of the Catholic Church was the teachings of Jesus to his disciples. Jesus was a man likely born between 6 and 4 BCE. Did you hear what I did there? Who was executed by the... Oh, Oh, wait. Okay, you all actually know who Jesus was. Okay, I'll speed this up a little bit. Jesus' disciples had been instructed to carry on his message. The first pope was Peter, St. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. In theory, each pope elected since him is a direct successor to Peter and therefore Jesus. As you might know, there have been more than a few times that there has been an antipope or even multiple antipopes at the same time as the canonical pope. So this whole only one successor to Jesus thing is a bit of a stretch, but oddly not what the French wars of religion were about. Due to Christians being required to renounce other gods, they were often persecuted in the Roman Empire. Some decided that their faith wasn't enough during this period and renounced their beliefs. This actually led to early schisms within the church. I will mention in what I think is one of the more humorous allegations, Christians were accused of being cannibals and incestuous. 
The former due to the Eucharist, the consuming of the blood and body of Christ in the form of wine and a wafer. The latter is because Christians describe themselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. I guess it's only humorous if you're not being persecuted for it. So, um, distance, distance helps with many things. Things changed for the early church in 312 when Constantine, the Roman emperor, associated his victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge to Christianity. Prior to the battle, Constantine had dreamt that his forces would be protected if he fought under the banner of Jesus. And we don't know exactly what banner was used. Really, we, we don't. We have theories, but we don't actually know. But he won the battle. So Jesus or good battle strategy, right? With the adoption of Christianity by the emperor, Christianity became the state religion. This whole what the king or emperor or even duke in some cases worships, everyone else worships, will be an important theme throughout this episode and the following episodes. If you're interested for the Roman imperial period, this had been the case. State religion was just how things were done. One emperor, Elagabalus, even tried to change the state religion of Rome from the pantheon of the state gods to the primary worship of one god, Elagabal, in 220 CE. Oh, the, the other gods were still around. They just weren't important, nor were they to be sacrificed to. I'm not going to go through this, but it was pretty disastrous for his rule. He was assassinated in 222. Unlike Elagabalus, Constantine's change went much better. Constantine died at old age-ish, so that's, that's a win. <laughs> Constantine did, though, need to make sure that everyone was worshipping the same way. This was a Roman thing. If the gods weren't respected correctly, then the gods wouldn't support the state. Change gods to one god, and you can see where this is going. Until this point, Christianity had contained plenty of philosophies and thought that was spread between various groups of practitioners. These communities could be spread out and could often have very different thoughts on the nature and person of Jesus and further the relationship of Jesus to God. Bishops would meet to discuss what they should be teaching their flock, but there weren't concrete rules and regulations within the religion. I will note, though, that Constantine did not write or select the books of the Bible. We'll get to it a bit further in just a moment, but those books were already relatively selected at this point. This idea, though, of no set rules and regulations and, and different ideas, just it would not do for a state religion in Rome. So how did Constantine deal with this? Well, he called all of those bishops, or at least 1,800 of them, to Nicaea in 325. It looks like fewer than 350 of those invited attended, and I'm guessing this has something to do with travel being a little bit more difficult than, than it is now. Though Constantine did pay for the travel costs, and I do wonder what his per diem was. This council, creatively named the Council of Nicaea, it's actually today called the First Council of Nicaea, but they didn't know they'd be sorting this out a lot. <laughs> In case you're curious, the Catholic Church recognizes 21 official ecumenical councils, which is what the Council of Nicaea was. This council sorted out the nature of Jesus. This has a lot to do with his divinity, and I'm going to save that part of this discussion for my anti-pope episodes. They did sort out the proper time of year to celebrate Easter, which is great, I think. Obviously, it caused some confusion in later centuries. What they didn't do, though, was important. 
they didn't decide biblical canon. That had already been mostly sorted out. Remember, this religion had been around for almost 300 years at this point. There was one minor attempt to bring back the Pantheon by a later emperor, but in general, the religion of the Roman Empire from this point on was Christianity. For the Western Empire, basically what one would think of when saying Europe today or Western Europe today. This meant that when the Roman West fell, I hope you all heard those air quotes, in 476, the church was still there. Even in England, there had been Roman churches, which fell into disuse due to migratory and political changes. Wow, that is just hiding a lot of complexity. Just go with it for now. Converting the kings of the successor states of the Roman Empire was one of the church's big goals. In France, this was achieved with Clovis I, who had been born a pagan and then converted to Arian Christianity. Oh, and Arian Christianity will be explained later, but it was heretical to Catholic Christians. It's, it's a long story. His wife, Clotilde, was a Nicene Christian. Nicene Christianity will eventually fracture into the various churches that you may know today, the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. Clotilde was a convincing woman, and Clovis came around to her way of thinking and was baptized into the Nicene Church in 496. This conversion had a huge influence, not just on the spread of Christianity throughout Western Europe, but specifically the church that will eventually become the Catholic Church we know today. Both Clovis and Clotilde are saints. Clovis exclusively in the Catholic faith of France. He's not actually officially canonized or even beatified. And Clotilde in all major branches of Christianity. From here on, it's good to think of two ways of Christianity spreading through two routes, war and preaching. I'm including marriage in preaching and I'll explain why in a moment. The former is, for example, when a Christian king took over territory, those in that territory were often persuaded to convert to Christianity. The preaching route was often led by monks and missionaries, plus wives. Yes, bishops would often see the daughters of kings or other higher-ranking men as a great way to convert a pagan king. They would send these daughters as brides, and part of the retinue of these women would include priests. Gregory I, the Great, was a pope from 590 to 604, and was a big fan of the preaching route missionaries were his thing. Clovis's great-granddaughter, Bertha, married the pagan Old English king, Ethelbert of Kent, in 580. The French princesses had a certain cachet as brides, as you've seen historically, and she was promised she would be allowed to practice her faith. She brought her chaplain with her, and the two of them softened the entry for Augustine of Canterbury, who would help begin the reconversion of England. The Roman Christianity of Constantine started showing signs of disagreements in the 720s. The Eastern leaders began a process called iconoclasm, or the breaking of images. This comes from the Ten Commandments, specifically, thou shalt make no graven images. The early church, both East and West, allowed the spread of icons, often small representations of Jesus or Mary, or sometimes even saints, that would be kept in a small personal altar, or even larger icons that were kept in churches. 
In the 720s, the church in the East wanted to get rid of these icons. And the church in the West, led now by Gregory III, was like, why? By why, I mean they were like, uh, no, that's, that's never happening. Charlemagne's crowning as the Roman emperor on Christmas Day 800 was also a huge change in the church. This didn't split the East from the West yet, but it meant that the church in the West now had its own military protector, didn't need the emperor in Constantinople anymore. Throughout the 900, reforms emphasized the Pope's leadership of the church over secular leaders. In 1054, the East and West Church had a huge fight. The Pope, used to being in charge, really wanted the East to recognize his primacy, as in being the head. The East said, no. There had been ongoing issues between the two branches of the church, but this was really it. Both sides disagreed about who would be in charge of the religious aspects of Sicily, among other things. The Pope, Leo IX, and the Patriarch, Michael I, mutually excommunicated each other. I bring up the schism, the Great Schism, as it's known, to really emphasize, as I'm hoping the earlier summary made clear, the church was always a moving, changing, up-in-the-air thing. It wasn't completely stuck in place. And not being this massive monolith would have been helpful when we get to the time period we're looking at now. I've mentioned Arianism, which was heretical to Catholics, but it wasn't the only heretical to Catholic sects. France had its own rather major heretical sect, the Carthers. The Crusades, as we think of them, started in 1095, but in 1209, a crusade in France was started. The Albigensian Crusade to destroy the Cathar heresy. This crusade would last until 1229, but ended with the destruction and genocide of the sect. The French leader for most of the crusade was Simon de Montfort the Elder. His son will feature heavily in a future season. And after this message, you'll hear more. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As the church started moving into the middle and late Middle Ages, there was a push from secular leaders to have more control of the church. This will lead to various investiture controversies. I've even mentioned some of these when looking at, say, Henry I. In 1309, there was an actual split in the church. The papacy moved to Avignon, an independent-ish holding of the Holy Roman Empire that was within the territory of France. Most of the popes who reigned in Avignon were actual popes, not anti-popes, but this wasn't an easy time for the church. The papacy returned to Rome in 1378, but after this, well, there was a lovely little schism because some wanted the Pope to remain in Avignon, and this was settled finally in 1417. I'm not going to get into the Church in the Americas in this episode, but do know that the Catholic Church had a bit of an impact there. Instead, I'm going to jump ahead to March 1517 to discuss the Fifth Lateran Council. This council was held between 1512 and 1517 and was called because the church was struggling. There had been ongoing disagreements between the church and the Italian city-states, along with the French crown. The warrior pope, Julius II, not named after Julius I, the pope, but for Julius Caesar, had tried to do the warrior thing and solve his disagreements with the French with uh, war and was a member of the League of Cambria. It actually went poorly for him at first. Gaston of Foy, who patrons will recognize, was highly successful against the League. But when he died, the League forces had their day. Julius II had, prior to the war, promised to call a council, but had waited. Instead of him calling a council, uh, um, an anti-council was called in Pisa. Okay, a schismatic council, but I want to call it an anti-council. There might have even been an anti-pope elected during this council, and don't worry, I'll get there eventually. Julius II, realizing he might want to get control of his church back, called his own council with a bull issued in July 1511. Don't get excited about papal bulls. They sound cool. It's really just a piece of paper. It's like an edict, but it's papal. At the end, this council sorted out very little, which really hurts the papacy and the Catholic Church in the long run because there was a lot that should have been looked at, especially dealing with the finances of the church. One of the things I need to mention is that the council lasted so long that Julius II died and his successor, Leo X, was elected pope. Leo, unlike the warrior pope Julius, was a cultural pope. He wanted to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica and shore up the church finances. In his defense, St. Peter's today looks amazing, but that was a lot of money to spend. To do this, 
He allowed the selling of indulgences at a level not seen for about 50 years at this point. Notice indulgences had been critiqued within the church for at least a century at this point. Even Pope Boniface IX condemned the granting of indulgences by religious orders that were abusing the practice. This, this wasn't a new idea. Now, in general, indulgences aren't a horrible idea. Prior to actually looking into it, I had always thought that it was buying less time in purgatory, but that's not quite correct if I understand this. Originally, they were a way to reduce the time period of punishment after death, which is penury, not necessarily purgatory. The idea that absolution, i.e. the pronouncement that a sin has been forgiven by a priest, usually through confession and penance, may not be enough to remit the sin. An indulgence, which was first offered to crusaders, could, in religious theory, help with the time we needed to spend serving penury. I actually found a good example on catholicstraightanswers.com, and I struggled to find the words, but, quote, For example, if I damage my neighbor's car, I can sincerely plead for forgiveness, and my neighbor can genuinely forgive me. Yet, I will also, in justice, have to pay for the damage to the car. End quote. So the indulgence was kind of like damage insurance. I mean, you have to pay your deductible, right? Or excess for my Australian listeners. Your sin had been forgiven, but there still needed to be some punishment, and the indulgence got you out of that. As I mentioned, these were first granted to crusaders, but eventually they were granted for acts of charity, say the giving of alms, Penance or piety often linked to praying extra. And remember, one had to be truly contrite and ask for forgiveness, even with their indulgence and the absolution they received from the priest. This isn't just an I'm sorry. This is I am truly sorry. I will note that indulgences are still granted today. In fact, there were rather specific ones related to the recent global health event. In the late Middle Ages, though, some who were in charge of raising funds for church projects, say the building of a leper colony or a school, would grant indulgences regardless of contrition to those who donated the right amount. The earlier church had tried to control for this. At the 1215 Lateran Council, for example, limits were put on the length of time an indulgence could be granted, so one year or 40 days. But Leo X didn't seem to have such qualms. And this lack of ethics will lead directly to the Protestant Reformation, the French Wars of Religion, the Reform in England, and the Reformation in the Principalities of Germany. All right, and now we're moving on to the big bit. You have probably heard of Martin Luther. For my American listeners, Martin Luther King Jr. was renamed for him. His father, Michael King, was a preacher for the Baptist Church. In 1934, he visited Germany for the Baptist World Alliance and learned a great deal about Martin Luther. Upon his return to America, he had his name changed to Martin Luther King and changed his oldest son's name from Michael King Jr. to Martin Luther King Jr. Honestly, the teachings of the first Martin Luther greatly influenced both kings and is something to look into if you're interested. It's a little tidbit of history I love, and I really enjoy sharing that. Martin Luther King Jr. is someone who I have deeply respected my entire life. The first Martin Luther, the one that we're actually discussing, was born in 1483 or 84. 
and he was ordained in 1507. He had come from a wealthy family, not nobility, but coming up in the world. His father had wanted him to be a lawyer, but Luther struggled to find his calling within the university until, well, he found his calling. He claimed that he was stuck in a thunderstorm in 1505 and a lightning bolt struck the ground near him. He swore to St. Anne that he would become a monk and this became his vow. His university friends were devastated to see him leave their institution and thought they might never see him again. He was apparently a very personable, enjoyable man to be around. Um, all the readings I've found, he, he sounds like he would have been interesting. Luther joined an Augustinian order and by all accounts was a devout monk, but felt spiritual despair. To occupy Luther's mind, his superior ordered that he return to academia. He actually began teaching theology in 1508, but wasn't awarded his doctorate until 1512. University was a bit different back in the day. His career was going well until 1516, when his archbishop appointed a Dominican friar who had come to Germany to sell indulgences as the general commissioner of their bishopric. Luther's archbishop was deeply in debt and requested permission from Leo X to sell further indulgences, with half the proceeds staying with the archbishop. Luther, hearing about this, was offended and in 1517 wrote to his archbishop expressing his opinion. He included an early draft of what we call his 95 Thesis. This was purely academic and within his protest, Luther was asking for guidance and not trying to confront his leader. He likely never nailed these theses to a church door since it was a philosophical discussion piece for theologians, not a pamphlet meant for mass consumption. Luther's archbishop did forward his letter without ever responding to Luther to Rome to have it checked for heresy. At this point, if he had wanted it to be such, Luther could have had it printed. The printing press was around and, and widely used at this point. Eventually, these theses were shared, and in early 1518, some of Luther's friends translated it from Latin to German, and the fact that it was originally written in Latin tells you everything you need to know about his plans to distribute it. In that same year, Luther was examined for heresy, and it went poorly. He actually snuck out of the city the examination was being held at overnight to avoid all the horrible things that could have happened. Now, I've read through the full translation in English, and I'm not going to read it out here, but I think that's actually what I'm going to do for this week's This Too Shall Pass. It might be a little longer of an episode than normal, which means it'll have mid-rolls. I'm sorry about that. But I think it'll be worth it. It took less than two weeks for Luther's writing to spread throughout Germany. I'm a huge fan of the printing press, and this is one of those moments in time where a great idea met a great invention. I'm sure John Wycliffe and his Lollards would have had an even bigger impact as well if they had had the printing press. The Cathars might have survived if they had had the printing press, or they could have been taken out sooner. And this doesn't even start to account for the countless other reformers who haven't come up in this show yet. They will come up at some point. I just, I don't want anyone to think I'm forgetting about the Hussites. I'm mainly pointing out that Luther wasn't the first to question the church on something. He just happened to ask the right questions at the right time. And his timing was amazing. Students flocked to him to hear him teach his theses. It had reached England and France by 1519. 
1520, he had come to the conclusion, based on his reading and teaching of the Bible, that faith alone through God's grace and the faith in Jesus was the only way to salvation. Luther was excommunicated on the 15th of June, 1520, and he continued writing through the rest of his life. Now, I'm not going to continue with Luther's story at the moment. I may actually include him as an anti-pope, as long as everyone promises to see it as a tongue-in-cheek joke. And I, I do not mean to suggest that Luther ever wanted to be pope, or was trying to be pope, or anything like that. If you are interested in that episode, please let me know. I think it would be really fun to do. And he's a historical subject I would love to have an excuse to spend more time reading about. It could take a few years. So if you're listening in 2027, hello, and hopefully I'm getting there soon. One thing I shouldn't forget to mention is that Luther was heavily in favor of the Bible in the vernacular as part of his faith alone stance. And one could understand faith through reading the Bible. And this can't be understated. I think personally, literacy is so deeply important for education and for understanding the world around us. And and while Luther and I may disagree theologically, I'm glad to know we both support literacy in general. In France, at least in relation to Calvinism and Huguenot, things were a little different. The early theology of this branch of Protestantism was expressed by Holdrich Zwingli. Any of my Swiss listeners, I'm really sorry if I messed up that pronunciation. Please let me know how wrong I'm doing. He was a Swiss man and he expressed it in 1519. He was aware of Luther, but his theology was created independently. One area they really clashed was on their beliefs regarding transubstantiation. Luther felt the literal body of Jesus Christ was present, whereas Zwingli saw it as a symbolic representation of Jesus. Luther actually called Zwingli blasphemous. Yeah, reform groups were just as ready to challenge each other as they were to challenge the Catholic Church. Zwingli's influence was mainly in urban areas of Switzerland, and he would die in 1531 while fighting against Swiss Catholics during the Second War of Capel. Zwingli's cause was taken up by John Calvin and a few others, but we're going to focus on Calvin, and until very recently, historically, he has gotten all the attention. In what will sound like the start of a familiar story, Calvin was a Frenchman whose father wanted him to be a lawyer but he was rather fascinated by theology. See, I, I told you it would sound familiar. He was forced to flee France after the affair of the placards in October 1534. Patrons already know a bit about it, but quickly, Protestants put up placards uh, all over France, including one on the king's door, and they were regarding religion, and they were incredibly inflammatory to French Catholics. Calvin didn't end up in Geneva right away, but through a series of chances, he would arrive there in 1536, planning on staying for just one night, and instead, he would stay there for the next two years. Calvin was not in favor of the title Calvinism and actually condemned it, but his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, was so influential that he really couldn't stop the name from spreading. This book was written as a personal defense of Calvin's faith, and I'm not going to cover it here, but it will come up again in a few years, and I will give it the coverage it deserves then. The name Huguenot, in case you're curious, obviously has nothing to do with either John Calvin or Huldrych Zwingli. 
Apparently, it comes from a Genevan magistrate named Basson Con Hughes. Oddly, despite being associated with French Protestantism, Hughes was a Catholic, and while sympathetic to Protestants, he was in favor of Catholic leadership, but just thought you'd like learning this little fact. Now, before I finish this episode, I need to discuss the state of religion. I've touched on it a few times, both in this episode, how Christianity becoming the state religion of Rome is what helped it spread, and then how the state, either Rome or France or England, helped the religion spread further. I've also talked about it in earlier episodes, especially Antoine de Bourbon's episode. What I need to note here, though, is how deeply intertwined this was. There wasn't an idea of religious pluralism at the time, and pluralism is the idea that diversity within a political body is acceptable. Our modern society, um, Australia and the US, in most cases, allow multiple ideas to exist side by side in theory. When applied to religion, this just means that different religions can coexist, which they often do quite well here in Australia or most of the time in America. <laughs> New Zealand's apparently relatively good for this. There was no way for this idea to exist in the minds of 16th century human beings. The religion of the state needed to be the king's religion, and further, the people needed to follow that religion. It was expected by Calvinists in France that Catholicism would shrink until inevitably Calvinism took over, and or that the king would convert to Calvinism, and then it would take over. And the Catholics thought they would be able to hold back the reform tide. With this, I will see you next week, where I will actually start discussing the French wars of religion. I did warn you last week that this might be a few episodes. I would like to welcome my newest patron, John. Thank you so much for joining us. And, and patrons, if I've somehow managed to forget calling out your name, please let me know. I deeply apologize for that. It really means a lot to me that each of you are here, and it was not intentional. And before I go, I wanted to again remind you all of the YouTube page, so please check that out. And also, please remember that I am an affiliate with bookshop.org for my American and UK listeners. If you purchase through my link, it really helps me, so thank you in advance. Links are in the show notes and on all of my social media sites. And I hope you, I will see you all next week. Bye! Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at passpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash passpod.